I've had the privilege of preparing this for some time now, and it's been a blessing to me, and I hope it's a blessing to you as well. Um, but as I've been preparing for this message, there's something that I couldn't quite get out of my mind. You see, my wife and I, uh, we're in the process of remodeling our house right now. And as such, we're basically in a constant state of packing and unpacking all of our belongings into boxes. If you've ever moved before and had your whole life in boxes during the process, and then you decide to make dinner, but to make dinner, you have to unpack three kitchen boxes just to find a whisk. It's, it's basically like that, except for all eternity, or at least that's what it feels like for us. So anyway, we're in the middle of one of these stages, uh, and we're unpacking all of our books back onto our shelves for what feels like the third time, and a bookmark fell out of one of the books, and I have this bookmark up on the slide behind me, and you can see on this bookmark, hopefully, that it's from 2008. You can't read it, but it says it's from 2008. Um, and believe it or not, 2008 was 15 years ago. Oh, gross, right? I just ruined your whole morning, I know. It made me feel old, too. And I'm sure many of you have had an experience like this before where you've maybe found a journal from back when you were in grade school and you're opening up and reading it through it and it's like a, a time capsule that teleports you back in time and it, it blows your mind looking at what life was like back then. Um, this bookmark was definitely like that except kind of with a fun twist for me. Uh, this bookmark was my dad's and looking back at it, I have to give thanks to God for giving me a godly man as a father because this represents when my dad had sat us down back in 2008, and I basically said, you know, kids, I love you, and I want us to have a vision for our family. He told us that Proverbs says, without a vision, the people perish. So let's, let's write ours down. Let's move towards it. Let's pray for it. And let's work towards it and watch what God does. And like many things in life, I'm sure at various points, we forget about the bookmark or it'd be lost or misplaced, but I can say with confidence, we all, in unison, long for this vision. I won't read all of it, but in summary, the vision was for him as a husband and father to grow in godliness and to lead his family spiritually. For his wife to grow in her relationship with God and have a shared vision for the family. And for his children to walk in faith and find godly spouses. And really, all these were things that it's obvious God wants for his people, right? And they were based on promises that he has made. Most of the language for it, in fact, my dad has told me recently, was built out of Psalm 128. You don't have to turn there. It should come up on the screen behind me so you can follow along. But it says, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. This is God's word. It's pretty sweet, right? You can see how each of the pieces of the vision had been crafted from here. And really, all these are counting on God's promise that he'll be faithful to complete the work that he has begun in us. And now, 15 years later, we have gotten to watch God work and be faithful to fulfill his promises. Much the same in our text this morning. I think Luke wants us to look backwards at God's promises 
and watch him be faithful to fulfill his promises in our text today. So, without further ado, let's dive into God's word and actually read our passage. Uh, Our passage this morning is Luke 1, 5 through 25. You can turn there in your Bibles or you can follow along on the screen behind me. But if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you'll have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. The people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived... And for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me, to take away my reproach among people. This is God's word. You may be seated. From this passage this morning, I want to propose to you what seems like a a pretty simple idea for our main point. And it's this. God is faithful to fulfill his promises even to the unlikely and unbelieving. Let me say that again. God is faithful to fulfill his promises even to the unlikely and unbelieving. And my hope for our time this morning is that that main idea will cause us to glory in our Redeemer all the more and be stirred up to have faith in our Savior. I figured that wouldn't be a bad goal for this morning. To get started, I think it's helpful to have a roadmap of where we'll be going. I've broken our passage into a couple of sections. The first section I've titled, The Unlikely, which covers verses 5 through 17. 
The next section is titled, The Unbelieving, which covers verses 18 through 23. And the last section is titled, Promises Kept, which covers verses 24 and 25. And if I've gone through these too fast, don't worry, we should keep the outline slide up there throughout the sermon. But to begin unpacking everything that's going on in this passage, and to start our first point, which is titled, The Unlikely, I think it's super critical that we set a little bit of context before we dive in. Doug did a fantastic job last week explaining a lot about Luke and about his audience, and if you weren't here with us or if you haven't listened to it yet, I strongly encourage you, go back and listen to it. It was so good, and it got me excited for this book, and I know it'll do the same for you. But one of the things we learned was that Luke is writing this book to Christians with a couple of express purposes that he actually mentions. It's really helpful. And one is that they may know the gospel to be true with absolute certainty. Right? That's his first purpose. And the second is to provide a written record of everything from eyewitness accounts. Obviously, these goals go hand in hand, right? One of the ways that he does this is picking up where Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament, left off. It's almost as if he wants the reader to finish reading Malachi and turn the page to Luke chapter 1. So there's some history and some background that he envisions us having before we read this story about the birth of John the Baptist foretold. One of the things he expects us to know is that Israel ends Malachi not really in a good place. And yet, within that somber ending, there's a promise of something better to come. There's an anticipation of an Elijah figure coming before a messianic figure who will save Israel. And real quick, I want us to actually read the very last verses from Malachi. And you should be able to follow along on the screen behind me. This is Malachi 4, 5 through 6. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. These are the very last words of the Old Testament. It's a little dreary, but overall hopeful, right? And one thing I want us to understand this morning is that I think every good Jewish family after this prophecy is supposed to be anticipating this Elijah figure. And they're most certainly looking to every one of their own children as they are born to see if they will be this promised Elijah, sent from God to break God's long silence and foretell of the son who will set it all right. And yet, since Malachi, it's been 400 years. There's been no word, there's been no son. And it's here that we pick up and read the introduction to our story. And when you read it, you should see something is so, so wrong. The first couple verses of our story not only remind us of all of this, not only remind us that all of this has happened with very real people like Herod, who's a well-known part of secular recorded history, but they also show us the state of Israel. You see, with Zechariah and Elizabeth in particular, we're not just hearing about John the Baptist's parents. We're really getting the picture of a couple who is the absolute epitome of Israel's situation. They, in a way, represent the very best and the very worst of Israel. On one hand, they're the very best of Israel, because Zechariah is a priest. He 
is to be chiefly honored amongst his people as a priest. The duty he is serving on this day where he's offering incense is literally a once-in-a-lifetime privilege. He is one of around 18,000 priests. And the way the lots fell, he just so happened to be the one chosen today. What are the odds, right? And this duty is so special, he will never get this honor again in his lifetime. It's an incredibly special day. He's even married to a woman who is herself from a priestly lineage. It's the same feeling as when Brad Pitt originally married Jennifer Aniston. Like the coolest people in the world got married. Maybe that's not the perfect analogy, but you get what I mean. On top of all of that, Luke even goes so far as to say they live holy and righteous lives. These really are the best people in the best circumstance, right? And yet, upon further inspection, when we dig a little deeper, we see there's more to this story. You see, for starters, this is not Israel in the glorious golden age of the once famed Israel. This is actually a conquered Israel, living under Roman rule. And that King Herod we mentioned before, well, he's actually a very wicked king who doesn't rule by his own power. He actually answers to Rome. And that, so their king isn't just a wicked king. He's not even a real king at all. And Zechariah's venerated priestly role, well, he's actually from the line of Abijah, which is a disgraced lineage of the priesthood seen as the least of all the priests. And his wife from that good priestly lineage well, she's actually barren, which is truly a disgrace and dishonor above the rest of them. Not to mention that Zachariah and Elizabeth were getting quite old. And I likely long since waved goodbye to the hope of ever having a child, let alone having a prophecy-fulfilling son. And it's in the midst of this that our story takes place. Zachariah and Elizabeth, I think, really exemplify Israel at this point. Like we said before, they're the epitome of Israel's situation. They have a proud heritage, and there's still Israel, but on a very real, very visceral level, it's been 400 years that they've been waiting on this prophecy. They haven't heard a peep from God. They're living as a conquered people. They're disgraced and dishonored. They're barren. They're old. And they're truly hopeless. I think the best commentary I heard on this passage put it really simply. Israel is not where it wants or expects to be. You really could not pick a more unlikely time or a more unlikely couple through whom this prophecy might be fulfilled. And yet it's here, right here, with the most unlikely couple at the most unlikely time that God chooses to bring about a son who will foretell of his own son coming to earth. That's good news for us, isn't it? I don't know about you, but when I think about Israel's problem, I see my own problem. Don't you? If you remember back to the story of my dad's bookmark that I told at the beginning, I talked about how God has fulfilled that vision. Well, I'm here to tell you, it has not always seemed plausible that these things would come true. As a matter of fact, for most of our lives since then, one factor or another of that vision has seemed impossible. For example, my mother, the woman for whom we had originally prayed this vision, that we had hoped would be the fruitful vine in our house, would walk away from us and walk away from the Lord just a few years after that bookmark was made. Looking at that bookmark at that time would seem to only serve as a painful reminder 
of what the Lord had not done and from our perspective could not do. And for years it would be this way. If you asked us then, we would find ourselves also the most unlikely recipients of that promise. And yet now we've watched the Lord bring Jamie, my stepmom, into my dad's life, a truly incredible woman. My dad has been able to live out this vision with her in ways back then we couldn't have imagined. I know for myself, I've watched God bring Jess into my life, a wife whose maturity and godliness are beyond what I ever could have hoped for or even imagined. And though it's rarely how we ever would have thought possible, God has been faithful to keep his promises to us. For you, perhaps this morning, you find yourself questioning whether God will bring you the child you've prayed so long for, or whether he can provide you the godly spouse you long for, or whether God is able to really save a sinner like you. Christian, we are not promised all of the earthly blessings. What we are promised is the all-powerful and all-present God who absolutely sees you and hears your prayers and will absolutely work all things together for your good. And I have good news. Whether at this particular moment in, in your life you find yourself able to see the results of God's faithfulness in your own life or not, does not change God's faithfulness to you, the unlikely, in this moment right here, right now. Now we get to our, our second point titled, The Unbelieving. And I wanna point out something specific to us. I know we already read it, and I've been mentioning Malachi a lot so far, but it's at this point I want us to go back and actually reread this prophecy I've been referencing. And in particular, we're gonna read verses five through six A, and we're gonna read it back to back with Zechariah's um, promise that he gets from Gabriel. So this is Malachi 4, 5 through 6a. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. And now I want us to read a portion of Gabriel's prophecy from our passage today, and it should be highlighted on the screen behind me. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. You see, Luke is going out of his way to show us something here. If you just got done reading Malachi and turn the page to Luke 1 and read this, you should be doing what I think the directors of The Expendables want you to be doing during all their movies. For those of you that may not know, the Expendables is a series of movies where old action movie stars who had their glory days in the 1990s, like Sylvester Stallone, Arnold Schwarzenegger, who are now in their 70s and 80s. They kind of wander around on screen saying their catchphrases from their old movies, and their stunt doubles fight each other. <laughs> I, I don't know that I would recommend them, but they're definitely great movies. Um, but every time Arnold goes, get to the choppa, the director expects you to go, hey, he did it. He said the thing from his other movie. And this section of Luke, I think, is the same thing. If you just read Malachi and turn the page to Luke 1, when Gabriel says this, you should say, he did it. He said the thing from the other book. Boom, prophecy fulfilled, right? But the funny thing is, as I'm sure Zachariah was feeling, the prophecy wasn't really fulfilled yet. You see, God could have chosen any way and any time to tell Zachariah and Elizabeth about this child. And perhaps it would have made the most sense to have them conceive this child and then tell them about this child's future, or even just have a stork fly a baby to them. And yet that's not the case, right? 
God chooses to tell them about this child by simply promising them that he will show up eventually. He doesn't just give them the child. Instead, he gives them a promise of a child. He makes another prophecy. And I think we're supposed to notice that. It really sets up Zachariah's response to make more sense. We've already covered just how unlikely it feels that God will fulfill his promise. It's been 400 years after all. Israel isn't in good shape. And to do it through a child? From an old, barren, disgraced couple, nonetheless? At first blush, we're shocked at Zachariah's unbelief. We want to think that we would do better. We think to ourselves, come on, Zachariah, that's an angel. How could you not believe him? And yet, with the smallest amount of effort to put ourselves in his shoes, his question begins to seem pretty reasonable. I think if I were him, my answer would have been, I get it, Gabriel, but are you sure? Are you really sure? I don't know if they teach biology in angel school, but the odds of that are pretty slim. And yet, Zachariah simply asks, how shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And yet, at the heart of his response is exactly what we would find in our own hearts if we're honest with ourselves, which is fundamentally an unbelief that God will be faithful to fulfill his promises. In Gabriel's response to Zechariah, we see this revealed. He says, and behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Why? Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. For whatever reason, God chose not to just give Elizabeth and Zechariah a child immediately, but instead he provides them another promise and an opportunity to take God at his word however nonsensical and hard to believe those words may appear. And Zechariah's muteness should be a word of caution to us. Zechariah received a message from God, and Luke spends almost a quarter of our story detailing the indictment of Zechariah's wrong response and the fallout of his unbelief. And we would be remiss if we passed over this too quickly without examining ourselves. There is a right there's a wrong response to God's message to you. Zachariah's doubt and unbelief, though understandable, are also condemnable. That's part of Luke's purpose in this book, is to give us reason to not doubt and to instead have faith in Jesus. So praise God if your response to the gospel has been faith. And as we enter our third point, I think it's here where we begin to understand why God didn't just hand them a baby and then tell them about what John would do. I believe we simply get a promise so that verse 24, when we get to it, can actually land on us properly. You see, in the back of our mind, we should have looming that greater promise from Malachi, but we should now have looming larger in our minds this promise brought by Gabriel. You see, Gabriel shows up to make the promise and then he just leaves. Zachariah is made mute as a consequence for his unbelief, and he goes home, and I'm sure he relays the information to Elizabeth through what must have been a crazy game of charades. And at the end of the day, Elizabeth still isn't pregnant. And I would implore you, try to put yourselves in their shoes. All of this craziness of an angel appearing and a prophecy stacked on a prophecy, Zachariah is now mute. 
all this has just happened and it's wild, but you're still not pregnant. And we ought to sit in that for a minute. And it's only after we've considered the weightiness of this and also contemplated Zachariah and Elizabeth's position right now that verse 24 can have what I think is its desired effect. Verse 24 says, After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. You see, every good story at some point must reach some crescendo in which the dilemma is resolved. And for our story today, this is it. It's just a few words. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And yet it's in those few words that we see not just the miracle of a barren woman now with child, but we also see the beginning of the prophecy to Zechariah being fulfilled. Even more importantly, it's the beginning of the promise from 400 years ago beginning to be fulfilled. God has broken his long silence and the gospel's on the move. God is coming to earth to make everything right. And if you're willing to look even further, verse 24 is the beginning of the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham to bless all the nations through him. And even more so, it's the beginning of the fulfillment of the promise from the beginning of time in Genesis 3 when God promises to bring a snake crusher who will defeat sin for us. Verse 24 is the beginning of the triumph of the story of all of creation itself. And moreover, the beginning of the triumph of our story. This unlikely child will herald a new king and a new kingdom with no end. Now, when we think back to Luke's purpose in writing this book, it takes on a different color. When we say he wants us to have certainty, I think it's in this that he wants us to have certainty. Just as God certainly kept his promise to Zachariah and Elizabeth, he will certainly keep his promises to us. Just as he was faithful to bring them a baby boy when it seemed impossible, he will be faithful to save us from our sin when it seems impossible if we will but put our trust in him alone. To the unlikely, you may look at yourself as Zachariah and Elizabeth looked at themselves, the last ones that God can use to bring about his kingdom, or the weakest, least eloquent, least outgoing, most sinful, too old, or perhaps too young. Whatever you may see as the obstacle that God can't overcome, know that your God brings life from the barren. He brings voice to the mute, and has brought life to you who were once dead in your trespasses. To the Christian who has difficulty always believing, if you struggle with whether or not God could really save you, know Gabriel's response to Zechariah. Gabriel tells him that his promise to Zechariah is not sure because it is the promise of an angel, but his words are trustworthy even in the face of impossible odds because... They come from the very God of the universe. Just as we see the promise of John's conception fulfilled just a couple of verses later, so you can read on in Luke and see the promise of your salvation accomplished in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, your Lord and Savior. And I would implore you to do that. Read on through the rest of this book and be encouraged. And we would be remiss if we did not see the kindness that this passage brings to those who are struggling with conceiving. 
Though you may not have the promise of a child, know that you most definitely have the promise that the all-powerful, faithful God of the universe hears your prayers. Note Gabriel's very first words to Zechariah. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Whether he brings you a child, as he did for them, or not, he has not forsaken you. He's not forsaken you any more than he had forsaken them. God was faithful to attend to their needs well past their childbearing years. And just because their situation seemed hopeless did not mean God was any less attuned to their needs or their prayers. To the non-Christian, we have perhaps the most important application today. The whole point of God's faithfulness to these smaller promises in our story today is to point us to the fact that we can rely on him to be faithful to a much bigger and better promise. If God was faithful to bring a child to these unlikely and unbelieving people, we can trust that he'll be faithful to bring about salvation to the unlikely and unbelieving today. The same sureties that you have heard promised today to the Christians can be yours. But if you have not placed your hope in life and death only on this promise keeper, Jesus, then these benefits are not for you. Take Zachariah's muteness from his unbelief as a word of caution and as a reminder that God does not take unbelief lightly and instead place your hope in him alone. Next week, we're gonna hear from Doug on the birth of Jesus foretold. I can't wait to hear him unpack it for us, but between here and there, you have the opportunity to meditate on God's faithfulness and I encourage you to do just that. My prayer for us this morning is that we would leave with all the more reason to glory in our Redeemer and be stirred up to have more faith in him. Knowing that God is faithful to fulfill his promises even to an unlikely and unbelieving person such as you and me. I'm gonna pray to close us and then Jason is gonna come up to lead us through communion. Dear Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the reminder that it serves, that you have not forsaken us, that you are indeed faithful to us, even when we are the unlikely and the unbelieving. And I pray that the encouragement of your word might stir us up to more belief in you, to be, to be faithful, to keep your promises, your promises of salvation and your promises to hear our prayers. Father, might, might our faith be increased. We love you and we praise you and pray all these things in your name.